All right. Guys, thank you uh, for being here tonight. I believe that uh, you're going to enjoy this teaching on Charles Finney's life and the Second Great Awakening in America. It's uh, some pretty amazing things, some things uh, that came about through his life that for the church were kind of like finding hidden truths, things that uh, the church up until that point hadn't really seen, uh, hadn't been illuminated in the Word of God as to some of the truth that that he was able through his life to see. And he kind of grew up in unique circumstances. We're going to talk about that. It, it, the way he grew up allowed him to be kind of set apart and uh, to, to see some things. But before we get into that, guys, let's go ahead and uh, bow our heads. Let's just open in prayer. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here tonight, Lord. We yield this time to you. I ask you, Lord, speak through me. Father, mute my mouth. And Lord, allow, I ask that the Holy Spirit speak through me so that these people get exactly what you want them to hear tonight, Lord. Father, I pray that their hearts and their souls be fertile soil for your ground. I pray that this word goes down in them like a seed. Let it become part of their spiritual DNA. Father, as a church, we, as Pastor said earlier, we receive and we honor the movements of the fathers of the faith. And we ask you, Lord, to allow this to, get, to become part of who we are, that we're able to, to start from where Charles Finney and those that were before him, where they left off, Lord. Let us not have to redig those same wells, but let us walk, Father, beyond where they're at and starting where they're at. We, we just thank you. We honor you for that, Lord. We ask right now, Father, I pray that everyone give us their best ear during this time. I pray, Father, that our hearts be open to receive from you and that the, the truth in the, in the word that you want to come forth, Lord, is able to be received and that it's able to, to impart and, and to, uh, to help prepare for the destiny of those young men and women uh, that are here tonight, Lord, and what you have in their lives and what you want to see fulfilled in their lives. And I thank you for that, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, so Charles Finney was an evangelist at heart, right? He cared about people's souls. He wanted to see them saved. But the interesting thing is he grew up in a, not an anti-religion, but almost just an absence of any type of religious background. Uh, Where he grew up at, there were no churches. So he didn't grow up hearing the word of God. There was no Bible in his house. In fact, his father never read a Bible until he was 29 years old. So... It wasn't like they were anti-Christian. It wasn't like they were pro-Christian. They just had, he just had no background at all. Uh, the interesting thing about him, so he grew up, uh, he was a very intelligent young man. By the time he was 16, he was actually the instructor of his, in his schoolhouse. It's a small community, right? So how, do we have anyone here at 16? Raise your hand if you're 16. Yeah. Who's close? 15? 14? Uh, 14, all right. So imagine if in two years from now, instead of sitting there in the classroom, you guys were up teaching the class. That'd be pretty interesting, huh? Uh, so that, that was kind of, uh, that was the environment he grew up in. So very, very brilliant young man, um, but again, grew up without kind of church around him. I want to set the stage for you guys, too. We, we talked a little bit before, and Pastor talked about the first great awakening, right? And, and America was going through the uh, American Revolution at the time. They declared their freedom from... Uh, Britain and and they fought that war and now we're kind of in that period right after that and we're before the industrial revolution so guys just what that means for those of you who may not have studied this yet in school there what there wasn't really machinery there were there weren't uh, big factories producing things most everything was still made by hand so 
uh, just picture kind of that, that time frame. Uh, we also, we hadn't had the Civil War yet. So it's kind of the very infancy of our nation. And America was trying to figure out who it was and what it stood for. They had come, you know, you had a lot of people that had come over from Britain and they declared their independence. We studied about the Wesley brothers. We studied about uh, Wycliffe. And, and you had these people that, you had the East Coast where most people live, so Boston, New York, Philadelphia. Um, and then you had pe the group of people that were starting to move west into the western frontier, which at that point, which sounds funny to us, right, because we're talking the Appalachian Mountains, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio. But for them, that, those, that was wilderness land. And as a nation, we were just, we were, we were growing and we were developing. And, and that's the time frame that Finney grew up in. I want to read a quote to you guys that really talks about, this was from a, a sermon that Finney preached, but I want you to hear his heart here. Christian people, are you working to get a little property yet neglecting your souls? Beware lest you ruin your souls that can never live again. Do you say, I did not suppose you believed a word of it yourselves. You did not act as if you did. Are you going to heaven? Well, I am not. I'm going down to hell. There is no help for me now. You will sometimes think of me as you see the smoke of my woe rising up darkly athwart the glorious heavens. After I've been there a long, long time, you will sometimes think that I, who once lived by your side, am there. Oh, remember, you cannot pray for me then, but you will remember that once you might have warned me and you might have saved me. And guys, what he was wanting you to do, he's wanting you to, to realize, right, some of you the majority of you, I'm assuming, in the room are, are already Christians. But we walk in a world of people that either don't know the Lord or think they know the Lord, but they really don't know the truth of him. They, they haven't really been reborn. And, you know, someday, someday they're going to die, and they're going to have a reality that they're going to face. And what he's trying to get you to realize here is, you know, sometimes it's hard to step out and to say something to someone, right? You don't want to be embarrassed. What if they, what if they laugh at you? What if they kind of make fun of you, you know, what he's trying to say to you is, imagine though if that person went to hell, and they're, and they're down there, and you had an opportunity to talk to them, and you didn't say anything, because you were afraid to get a little embarrassed, and when you put things in that type of eternal perspective, and that's the life that he lived, guys, that was, that was his reality, and as we study, as I go through this, and we talk a little bit about him, like I said, he's an evangelist, he wanted to see people come to know the Lord, and he wanted those that were sitting there in the audience as he spoke, he wanted them to think these things. They weren't comfortable messages, right? If you haven't, if you haven't figured this out from some of the guys we studied, Jonathan Edwards, the Wesley brothers, a lot of their messages were different than what we hear today. A lot of the churches in today's world, they go there and, you know, they, you want them to make you feel good. They give you a little motivational speech. They give you a little pep talk, and then they send you on your way till the next week. And... Um, and, you know, that's okay. Sometimes we do have to affirm each other. We have to lift each other up, especially sometimes people are going through rough times. But there's also a balance to that. You've got to have the other side of the road so that you don't get into the ditch. And, and that's that, you know, we live in a world of a bunch of people that right now aren't going to heaven. If, 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 not if we don't do something, but if the Lord doesn't move and we don't do our part to help them to know the truth of the gospel. And that was a big part about what Finney's life is. Finney modernized evangelism. There, we'd studied with the Wesley brothers. We studied Wycliffe, but he, he approached it in a different way. And I told you earlier, it was in part because of the way he grew up. He grew up outside of religion, right? So in his formative years, when he was a young man growing up, 
he wasn't he didn't have the um, the experience of growing up in a church that maybe didn't have a true or a full understanding of the gospel and what that allowed him to do is when he got a little older in life he was able to read the word of God without any type of prejudices right any biases he hadn't grown up in the church being told this is the way it is and that allowed him to see some things that maybe others wouldn't I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. All right, so he was born in 1792 in Warren, Connecticut. This was one year after John Wesley died. Again, guys, if you remember, John Wesley and his brother Charles came over from England. They went around. They kind of formed the, or helped uh, really uh, propagate the the circuit rider ministries of the Methodist religion. So they would go out and and they would ride a big, you know, 500-mile track, and they would stop and preach along the way. Um, so it's kind of, again, right after that time frame in our nation's history. Um, said he was an excellent athlete and a brilliant student. So they said that uh, at the age of 20, there was, I kind of think of Fernando when I hear about this. They said there was no, no man that could uh, throw him down to the ground, right? And uh, no one was quick enough to uh, knock his hat off his head, right? I think back in the day, you know, the early 1700s, that's the type of games they had to play. How quick are you? Can you knock the hat off my head? Um, they said no man could run faster, jump farther, leap higher, or throw a ball with greater force or precision. And guys, that really doesn't do much other than I just want you to kind of, I want you to have a picture of the, of the man as he's, as he's growing up. And it's interesting. Um, he grew up with, again, with no religious background, but yet he kind of maintained a level of purity. And what I say by that is, so when he turned 18, he went to join the Navy. We were at war again with, I think it was Britain, I believe. Um, and he goes to join the Navy. And when he gets to the Navy yard, uh, he hears the, the Navy sailors talking, right? And if you've heard it, you ever heard of the phrase, you know, you curse like a sailor? That was, uh, I mean, that, that, that comes from a, a bit of reality. So he gets there and he hears this, uh, he hears these people just, I mean, just cursing left and right. And, and he's like, wow, I, you know, he's, he's like, I don't like that. And then... Um, some young women um, who are working ladies, who are prostitutes, basically come up and they proposition him. And he gets so embarrassed by it that he actually turns red. You know, kind of he gets he flushed in the face. And uh, it said that the, the poor girls got embarrassed because he was so embarrassed. And they, you know, they kind of both just started crying. So he decides, I, I don't, I can't do this. I'm not, I can't, this can't be the next part of my life. So interestingly enough, even though he didn't have anything uh, any religion, he had, he still had the conviction of the Lord. He still knew what was right and what was wrong. And he said, I can't, this can't be the next part of my life. So he, he, he leaves, he never joins the Navy. And he actually goes to a place called Adams, New York. And he takes a uh, position at working in the law office of a, a gentleman by the name of Judge Benjamin Wright. Now, this is interesting, right? He goes to work in a law office. And uh, this is the first time when he's there that there's actually a church in the community that he's in. So he, he starts attending this church as well. I found it funny. He said that uh, he, he found the sermons quite dry and boring. I was like, oh, that's, uh, you know, I'm sure the pastor appreciated that. But yet he, he went and uh, he said that a lot of times he would debate with the pastor about, about the sermon. So I'm sitting here thinking, I'm sure the pastor's loving this guy, right? Here's this very intelligent young man who doesn't believe a word of what I'm saying and thinks my sermons are boring, but he wants to debate me in front of everyone. You know, not exactly who, as a, I'm sure his pastor tells you, not exactly who you're 
model church attendee, you know. Um, but it was an important time in his life because he was starting to be exposed to the Word of God. And, and again, his mind, guys, he was a very intelligent man. So as he starts studying the law, and not, not the law of God like the Bible, but the law of man, the common law, he notices that most of the writers of the law are frequently citing the Bible um, as like a reason or a precedent as to why this law makes sense or why this law is a good law. So that intrigues him. He goes, okay, if, you know, why, why are they reciting this religious book as, you know, as a precedent for why a, a legal or a common law would make sense? So he starts studying it, not out of a desire to know God, but out of a desire to understand why it has a legal recourse or why it's important to his, his life. It's interesting. We, we talk about how um, the law or, you know, the kind of, we talk sometimes the Old Testament, the, the word of God, the things we are to do and the things we're not to do, uh, how that can be kind of a mirror as to your, your current spiritual state. And uh, I thought it was interesting. It says as he began to read the Bible more and more, he became aware that he wasn't right before God. It's kind of like when you guys go out, and, and I'm proud of you guys, you go out and you witness out on the streets, right? And, and, and you go out in a spirit of love, but when you talk to people, you, you ask them some questions. And most of the time you guys say, you know, you may ask them, hey, have, have you ever stolen anything, right? And most of the time people are like, yeah, yeah I have. Or have you, ever, uh, have you ever lied to anyone? Yeah, you know. Have you ever tr not treated your parents correctly? Have you disrespected your parents? Yeah. Um, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? And, and these are all, right, these are the Ten Commandments, right? It's the law of God. Those things are, are they're meant to be a, a mirror to show us that we're not right before God. It, because the, the world we live in, right, you may, they may look at you and go, if you go comparatively, right, if I look around at everything else that's going on in the world, you, the world might say, hey, I'm living a pretty good life. You, I'm a good guy. I, I donate to charities. I uh, go feed the homeless every once in a while. Um, you know, I, for the most part, you know, maybe I, uh, I'm dating a girl and I'm only dating one girl. So, Hey, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing right. But that's not, that's not God's law. That's not this, that's not the precedent or that's not the level that we're held to. And that's what, that's what the word of God does. It, it holds up that mirror to you and allows you to see the state that you're in. Um, and I had a couple of scriptures here for you guys, Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now that we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And then Galatians 3, 23 and 24 says, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So again, guys, what that's saying is basically the law is there to show us that we're not pure before God. We're not righteous. We're not holy in his eyes. We, it, the word says we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. And, you know, if it wasn't that way, then there would have been no need for Jesus to come, right? If we could live righteously by the law, then he wouldn't have had to come and, and, and to die for our sin. But by, by studying the law, right, and, and that's what you guys do when you go out and you talk to people out on the streets, you, you, you present the law to them, and the Holy Spirit moves on them with conviction, and they know that they're not right before God, and then they start thinking, right? 
okay, if I'm not right before God, what's going to happen if I die? Where am I going to go? Have I truly accepted Jesus? Have I gotten that, re- that, say, that repentance and, or have I gotten that salvation? That's where, that's where Charles Finney was. Listen to this quote from him. A little consideration convinced me that I was in no means in a state of mind to go to heaven if I should die. So by reading the law for his work, by reading the Bible to try to help out with his work, which was working in a law office, he came to the realization, guys, that he wasn't right before the Lord. I thought that was, I thought that was pretty interesting. So he starts growing restless. He knows that he needs a Savior, but yet everyone he's talking to, he's not getting the answers he needs. He's, he's in this church, and he's asking people, you know, what do I need to do? And, and basically, they just keep telling him, live holy, live righteous, live holy, live righteous. And, and uh, it says that he saw them um, praying every, every week, and, and they would ask things. And, and, but he said he never saw anything come out of those prayers, and, and that bothered him because he, he was reading the Bible, right? And he saw where it says, um, you know, seek and you shall find, ask and it shall be given to you. And he's going, but I'm, but that, I'm not seeing that. Um, and, and that was kind of, that was a larger problem in the church, guys, is in that time, uh, the church, they knew how to ask God for things, but they really didn't believe that he was going give to give it to them. And, and they knew how to petition the Lord, but they didn't really know how to receive from the Lord. And so this is where, where Charles Finney is. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he's not right before God. He knows that he needs a Savior, but he's not quite sure how, how to go about getting to that place. And at that time, guys, in the uh, church as a whole, there was uh, a Calvinistic belief, and what it was called was predest- predestination or predestined. And what that meant was they believed that God predestined whether or not you were going to go to heaven or whether you were going to be saved. Now, it was your job uh, as, a, as a Christian to try to live holy and to be righteous, and if you happen to be one of the quote-unquote elect, those that God chose, then you'd go to heaven. But if you weren't, then you'd go to hell and you deserved it anyway because you, you, never, you weren't able to live righteous and holy and pure, right? And, and uh, I told you earlier that Charles, he grew up outside of church, right? This is what most of the people from the time they were real young coming up through church, that's what they would have been taught. And they really didn't have any, any reason not to, not to believe that. But Charles, he, he didn't grow up that way. He didn't grow up with any belief at all. So he started reading the Bible, and he said, and he said to himself, I don't see where it says that in the Bible. I don't see where it says that God's going to say whether I go to heaven or not. You know, he's reading the Bible and he's saying, I see things here that say, if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and I believe in my heart that he raised, that he was raised from the dead, and I believe in that and I accept him as Lord, that I'll be saved. So so he's got this, he's kind of got this confusion going on because he's going, I'm going to a church and this is what the church is teaching, but I'm reading the Bible and it's saying something different. And it says, Charles concluded that if God is a good and a righteous judge, and if the Bible is his written word or the law of the, law of the land, right, the law of the spirit um, to humanity, then either the Bible is lying or the church is wrong, that the, Cal- the, the Calvinists were following a delusion. They, they weren't in the full truth of the gospel. And, and for you and I, guys, that may not seem like a big revelation, right? We've grown up most of our lives... Uh, with people telling you, you know, if you choose Jesus as your Savior and you're willing to turn from your wicked ways and you accept him as Lord and you ask him to be Lord of your life and you're reborn and you're born again, 
then you can, you can get salvation. You choose your salvation. At that time, guys, that wasn't what the prevailing message of the church was. The church said, you live holy so that you have a chance that God may, may have chosen you or may not have. And if you think about that from an evangelism perspective, there really wasn't. What did evangelism mean? You weren't asking someone to give their life to the Lord. You weren't asking them to, do you want to be saved? You could get up and you could kind of, you could kind of tell them you, you better live holy if you want a chance to be saved, right? And that's kind of what Jonathan Edwards and those guys did. You know, if you remember sinners in the hands of an angry God, I mean, he would get up there and, and he would tell them about hell and he would, he would tell them about the, the flames and the gnashing of teeth and he'd get people all white knuckled holding on to the pews and, and they wanted to be saved. But there wasn't any way, no one really understood up to that point that they could ask to be saved and they could make that choice themselves. And Ephesians 2 and 8 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. It was that by faith part, guys, that they were missing at that time. And that's the same reason when they would pray in church and they would ask for things and they didn't see it. It's because they, they weren't praying in faith. They didn't believe that they could move God, that they could get God to, uh, to move on their behalf by exalting their faith or by, by having faith in what they were praying. And we've been studying, right, these different revivals. Do you remember the Hebridean revival? There were six, six men, right, or seven men in a barn and two little old ladies at home praying with great faith that God was going to move. And he came on that whole, na- or that whole set of islands and moved mightily. It's by faith that we move God. And up until that time, that wasn't really, it wasn't something that was known. But again, Charles, his mind was such of that of a lawyer, right? So he sat there and he looked at the Bible and he said, if this is the law of God and it says, if I do this, then this will happen, right? And do you remember the Hebridean revival? If we, uh, who, who will see the... Uh, who will see the face of God but those with a clean, uh, clean hands and a pure heart? And uh, if, I, if I will, uh, Pastor Mel, help me out. Thank you. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord but those with a clean hands and a pure heart? If I do my part, God will do his part. And that, and that was basically what the revelation that, that Charles uh, came to. So while he's, while, he's having, while he's reading this and he's seeing this and he's praying about it, and he decides, I, I want to be saved. I, I, I think, and I believe the word of God says that I can, I can make that choice. So he's praying about it, and the Holy Spirit speaks to him, and he says he hears this quiet voice, and it says, what are you waiting for? Did you not promise to give your heart to God? And, are, are, and, what, and what are you trying to do? Are you endeavoring to work out a righteousness of your own? So basically, God was saying, are you trying of your own righteousness to, to, to get it to work to get your salvation? And he's saying, you read the word of God. You understand what you need to do. You just need to ask on me. You need to believe and you need to have faith and you will be saved. So he, uh, he it's funny. I don't know if, how many of you got a chance to read the book, but he goes out and he goes out into the woods. He goes out of town about a half a mile. He goes out into the woods. He goes over a hill. He goes up another hill and he gets out away from everyone, right? And he decides, I'm going to give my life to the Lord. And he gets, it says he climbed up on this tree and he said, I'm not going to get down until I'm, I'm saved. So he starts praying, asking the Lord to be a savior. Um, and he hears something behind him. And he looks and, and he, he quiets down. 
And so he starts again. He hears it again. And all of a sudden he realizes he's being prideful. He thinks someone's there watching him and he kind of gets ashamed of what he's doing. And the Lord convicts him. And he's like, if I'm going to give my life to God, I've got to be willing to be seen. I got to look, I got to be willing to look like a fool, right? I got to be willing to give, to really give my life to God. And, and he determines at that point that he will give everything. He, he's not going to come down. He's going to be loud. He's going to look like a fool until, until the Lord saves him. And it says uh, that the Lord moved on his heart and that it, it, uh, it was shed abroad with joy through his heart. And he felt a peace in his, in his heart and in his soul and in his mind that he, he didn't understand. It was more than he could, he could even you know, fathom. And he had left that morning. Um, he said he had no idea how long he was out there. And when he went home, it was dinner time. So he'd been there probably you know, six or nine hours going through this process. So the next day, he gets up and goes into work. And um, he, he decides, if, if I'm saved now, I can't continue to work here. I need to go. I need to basically go start preaching and start ministering for the Lord. And uh, a deacon of the church comes into the office, and the deacon was known as kind of a kind of a curmudgeon. Not you know, he wasn't a happy guy. He was kind of sour-faced and real serious. And uh, Charles starts telling him what happens, and the old the old man, who's always you know always grumpy, just starts laughing, and he can't stop laughing. He's happy and he's joyous, and Charles thinks he's making fun of him. He's like, he doesn't believe me. He's just laughing at me. Um, but what had happened was that the joy of the Lord had passed from Charles to, to this man. And another man came in, and uh, he asked Charles to pray with him. And he prayed, and he said it felt like the words of God stuck in his heart like an arrow. And then um, another elder of the church came in because he was supposed to be, Charles was supposed to be in court arguing this man's case. And uh, Charles told him, he said, I have a retainer from the Lord Jesus Christ, so I can't be in your, in your courtroom today to argue your case. Um, and at that, the, uh, the, the, the elder of the church actually kind of got a little convicted because I didn't say what the court was, the case was, but he says he went out of there and decided to settle it out of court with whoever it was that he was, you know, that was, that he was there with. So, um, so, so the Lord is starting to move through Charles' life, but he's not, he's not quite ready yet to start his ministry. So he's, he's still at his law offices and, uh, it says he, he helped close them down that night. And all of a sudden, he said it was dark out. He said the, the room next to him became bright as if it were day. And he walks in there, and he encounters Jesus face to face. And he said that, uh, he said, and he said, he said, I later considered whether or not it was just like an imagination of my mind. He said, but at that moment, he said, it was so real. He said, it was, there was a man that was standing before me that was Jesus. And he says, I went and I wept and I covered his feet with my tears. And he said, but I had such a, a joy. He said, I wasn't afraid of him. I, 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 wanted to be, I wanted to be near him. And at near the end of his time there with Jesus, um, the, he said the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And uh, he said, it, when he came upon him, it seemed to go through me, body and soul. He said, I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through me and through me. And indeed, and indeed it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love. He said, it seemed like the very breath of God onto me. And uh, so he finishes that. He gets, he gets, the Holy Spirit comes on him. He actually gets his prayer language. It says, I wept aloud in love and joy and literally bellowed out in un- unutterable gushings from my heart. So he gets saved. He meets Jesus face to face. 
He gets the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he gets a prayer language. And now he's like, all right, I'm equipped. I have what I need. I can go, I can go start, start ministering, right? All right, so we're going to transition a little bit here, guys, into his ministry. And, and when I looked at this, um, what you're going to see, guys, is a lot of these things that, that he notes as being kind of required to have an effective ministry are the same things that we've seen in the other revivals that we've studied, right? Things like prayer, intercession, fasting, uh, faith in God, you know, being in unity, things of that nature. And uh, as Pastor said, his, his ministry was kind of a, a forerunner. It was one of the first that kind of brought about the second great awakening. The first great awakening was really um, about kind of a, a, a holiness and a, and a pureness and a breaking away from the, the, the ways of, of the English church and kind of the, the religion of that. The, the second great awakening, it, it was about the souls of men, but more than that, it was about almost like changing the culture and changing the nation as a whole. And, and what, it said, what he says at one point is, I realized that revival not only had the opportunity to change the hearts of men, but it could, it could change the society that we lived in. And, and they kind of started up t taking up different causes, um, things like abolition, which basically means trying to end slavery, and temperance, which was uh, you know, kind of not drinking, and then women's suffrage. They were big proponents of women having the right to vote. And so there, there were things that kind of align with, our, with Christian values that came about as part of the, of the Second Great Awakening. And I told you that America was kind of trying to figure out who, who are we going to be as a nation? What are we going to stand for? And, and you had two different groups. You had this group of kind of uh, Unitarian, Unitarians and Deists. And the, so the, of today, if you think about like almost like the occult type of, of thought process. And, and then you had this group of Christians and you had a whole big group of people that were kind of just out there in the middle that didn't really know what they believed. And these two sides were fighting for the, the mind share and the hearts and the souls of those people. And uh, the ministry that, that Finney had uh, was one of the first that really started being able to reach large groups of people. And it talks about how he was effective in doing this. And it's funny because as I'm reading this and I'm, I'm studying about this, the same things that the same tools that he used that really he was a pioneer in, meaning he was the first one that the Lord really showed him to do, we see in later revivals. So this first one, uh, prayer, intercession, and fasting. Um, well, so prayer obviously it helps facilitate healings, guys. And um, he said that he noticed the more he prayed, the harder it became for sinners to uh, resist his words. And right, we see that when we go out, before you guys go out and, and witness, uh, you, you have a time here of prayer and worship. And you ask the Holy Spirit to go before you and to soften the hearts of those that you're going to be in contact with. Intercession. There was a man by the name of Daniel Nash who, who, who worshipped, or I'm sorry, who ministered alongside of Charles Finney throughout most of his revivals. And this man would go ahead of Finney, sometimes by days, sometimes by weeks, and he would go to the city that Finney was going to have the revival in, and he would cover that, that city in that time in prayer. 
he would just, he would get there and he would, they said he would just lay prostate on the floor and just cry out to the Lord and ask that, you know, the souls of those that are there be saved and that they, the Lord move in power and that the enemy be bound up. And he would go and he'd prepare that land. He'd get that ground ready, right? So that by the time that Finney got there, the atmosphere was soaked in prayer and, and the enemy had been bound. And, and, and Charles Finney came in and he had, he had good soil that he could plant seeds into, that he could harvest from. And it's interesting because uh, for those of you that are, for those of you that have been here and been to cell groups for a number of years, we, we studied a book called Listen to Me, Satan by Carlos Anacondia. And it talked about the Argentine, Argentina revival. And uh, in Argentina, Carlos Anacondia's ministry would send a whole group of people ahead of him. And for a, a month or six weeks, they would pray over the land and they'd bind up the strong man. And then when Carlos would get there to pray, there'd be people under the stage praying. And the first thing he'd say, he'd get up on stage and he'd look out at the crowd, there'd be you know, thousands. And, and he'd say, listen to me, Satan. And he'd bind them all up and all these people would be set free and the, the demonic would flee off in their lives. Well, that didn't happen because Carlos Anacondia, Carlos Anacondia was a great man of God. He had a lot, he had an anointing. But that only happens because there was weeks and months of prayer ahead of time and the enemy's power had been brought down so that, when, so that the power of God was able to move freely in that place. Well, that started with Daniel Nash and with uh, Charles Finney and in, in going ahead of the ahead of that time and soaking it in prayer before they got there. One of the things Charles Finney said when he was spoke, speaking about the the Rochester revival. So in Rochester, New York, guys, uh, Charles Finney held a revival, and over a hundred thousand people gave their lives to the Lord there over a short period of time. But he said the key to that unlock the heavens in this revival was the prayer of Abel Clary, Father Daniel Nash and the other unnamed folk who laid themselves prostrate before God's throne and besought him for a divine outpouring. So I thought that was awesome. Also on prayer, guys, they had pre- uh, Daniel Nash had praying lists. These were specific targeted prayers over stubborn issues. That sound like anything you guys are familiar with, right? We've got our prayer tanks back there, right? We've got something that we want to just cover in prayer, bathe in prayer, maybe lo- lost loved ones, maybe difficult situation, someone's dealing with cancer, someone's dealing uh, with, with some type of infirmity, maybe there's a job that needs to be had, we'll put it in that prayer tank, right? And we cover it in prayer. Well, Daniel Nash had that too. And, and they would go into cities sometimes. In one city in particular, they talked about there was a man who owned a bar there, and he, he just gave everyone that was in the church community a really hard time. And he would, he would heckle the people, and he would give them, you know, it just he made it difficult to be a Christian in that town. Well, Daniel Nash put him on his list, started praying over him, asking God to move on his heart, you know. And one day when Finney's holding his revival, they see this man, this bar owner, come into the revival. And Finney said, you know, he asked the Lord, do I, you know, is this man here to cause trouble? Do I need to get security basically to kick him out? The Lord, you know, no, let him stay. So uh, sometime through the, you know, in the middle of the revival, uh, the man raises his hands and he stands up and he asks if he can say something. And, and Finney felt peace about it, so he gave him, you know, you know, he didn't give him the mic, there was no mic back then, but he gave him the floor and said, yes, go ahead and speak. And uh, the man just broke down and started crying and repented and said he was sorry for all of the persecution he'd had in the church. He gave his life to the Lord there and uh, he turned his, he shut down his bar, turned it into a church. So 
you know, that's the that's some of the power of targeted, effective prayer. And that's why we get together, guys, on Tuesday nights and we come together on Saturday afternoons and we have the Watchmen Prayer Program where we pray daily and cover things because prayer moves God. Prayer with faith, it will move and it will change a circumstance. Uh, finally, the last thing I'm going to talk about, guys, just on prayer um, was personal prayer and a closeness to God. And that was something that Finney, you know, it was something he wasn't willing to compromise. He had his times of prayer, and, and he understood that before he could minister to the others, he had to be ministered to by God. And, and he had, he, it sounds like some of his prayer times were just amazing. This is a quote from him, and he was talking about being in his prayer closet, and he's talking about an encounter he had with the Lord. He said, he drew so near to me while I was engaged in prayer that my flesh literally trembled on my bones. I shook from head to foot under the full presence of God. And God assured me that he would be with me and he would uphold me, that no opposition would prevail against me. And I had nothing to do in regards to all of this matter but to keep about my work and to wait for the salvation of God. So guys, as you know, in that, that day and, 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 in, and even today, those that are truly doing God's work, you're going to have those that rise up against them, right? They're going to speak ill about them. They're going to lie about them. They're going to come against them. They're going to oppose them. Um, and, and I'm sure that Charles was praying, Lord, what am I going to do about this? Should I stand up and should I defend myself? Should what, you know? and, and the Lord you know, the Lord gave him an encounter, gave him a, a time where he made him feel his presence. And then he said, just be still. Let me be God. Let me take care of that. You just go about doing your work. You do what I've called you to do, and I'll take care of the other." The other thing that was big from a praying perspective, guys, praying down revival. Again, kind of that Calvinistic mindset of it's up to God to do everything. God will save who he will save and those who don't, you know, it, it, that was kind of the, the prevailing mindset of the day. It was the same with revival. They just believed if God wanted to come down and be with his people, he would, and if not, he wouldn't. And, uh, you know, we know that God's move, as we've studied all these revivals, right, as we've gone through this, we know that God's moved by faith. He's moved by prayer. He's moved by people that are seeking his face and that are calling out to him. And, and that was something that, that Father Daniel Nash recognized, and it was something that Charles Finney recognized. So they began praying and asking the Lord to move, to move in the cities. That's why Nash went ahead of him, and he covered the ground in prayer, and he asked him to move uh, so that by the time Finney got there, it, it, was, it was ready, and the, the atmosphere was set so that that revival could just, just pop when he got there. Second big thing, part of his ministry, faith is required to be saved and to be effective for the Lord. And again, guys, that wasn't the mindset of the day. Romans uh, 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3.24 through 26 says, So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Jesus Christ, you are all children of God through faith. Finney realized that by faith is how you took a hold of the promises of God. He read the Bible, and he, and he said, this is true. The Bible is not a lie, and there's things in here that are meant for us as Christians. There's things that are meant to help us live life. There's things that are meant to help us be set free from what the enemy is trying to do in our life. There's promises in the Word of God, but you can't, if you want them, you have to believe that they're gonna, you're going to get them. You believe first, and then you see them. And, and so much of the body at that time, they weren't willing, not they weren't willing, they didn't know to believe. 
you know, we, again, we think it's, it's common knowledge to us, right? We have to believe. We have faith. The faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. They just weren't ever taught that. They didn't know any better. And Finney, not being brought up in that, was able to read the Bible without a prejudice. He was able to see what the, or what the Lord had given to, the, to his body, and, and he was able to take a hold of that. Listen to, I want you to listen. This is Charles Finney praying to the Lord, pleading with him. He says, I hope thus does not think that I can be denied. I come with thy faithful promises in my hand, and I cannot be denied. That's pretty, that's pretty bold. I mean, if you're looking up at the Lord and you're telling him, you can't deny me, I, have, I believe this, your word of God says it, and you're going to do it. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't him being cocky, guys. It wasn't him, you know, being spiteful to the Lord. It was him saying, your word is true. I know it to be true, and you're going to do this. And this is what he says. He says, I cannot tell you how absurd unbelief looked to me and how certain it was in my mind that God would answer my prayers. Those prayers that from day to day and from hour to hour, I, find, I found myself offering in such agony and faith. Unbelief, guys, wasn't, he, he, it wasn't even something that was in his mind. He couldn't imagine a reality where God did not honor his word and did not fulfill the promise that it was found in, the, in his word. And the result of that, guys, was he saw it. He prayed, and then it happened. He said he may, it may, not, he may not have understood what it looked like when it was happening, but, it, but God, God moves. If you, if you pray in faith, God will move and answer that in, in accordance with his will and things that are in accordance with his will and in, in accordance with his word. So, all right. Next thing, guys, baptism of the Holy Spirit is effective, uh, is necessary to be an effective preacher. So I found this interesting. For the first decade of uh, Finney's ministry, he didn't preach from any type of notes and he didn't prepare any sermons ahead of time. It says he spent his time filling his mind and his soul with the Word of God. So he studied his Bible, right? And he, he made sure he spent time in prayer so that he was close to the Holy Spirit. And then he'd get up in front of the people to preach, and whatever the Lord gave him, that's what he spoke to. He just, whatever the Lord filled his heart with, that's what he gave to the audience. And uh, he, he talks about how, you know, the, the baptism of the Spirit and the gifts of God are important but it's it, the Holy Spirit being there and being filled is what allows you to be an effective preacher. He said, without the, without, the word of, or without the Holy Spirit, you don't have the ability to understand the word of God to the fullness to where you're able to minister in it. And he talks about it having to be an experience. I'm going to read something to you here. The power to work miracles and the gifts of tongues were given as signs to attest to the reality of their divine commission. But the baptism itself was a divine illumination filling them with faith and love and with peace and with power so that their works were made sharp in the hearts of God's enemies, quick and powerful like a double-edged sword. This is an indispensable qualification for preaching. Indispensable qualification. That means you should not be preaching without it. You're not going to be effective without it. Without the direct teaching of the Holy Spirit, a man will never make much progress in his preaching of the gospel. The fact is, unless he can preach the gospel as an experience, present religion, and present to mankind as a matter of consciousness, 
So what he's saying is, unless it's real to you, unless what you're talking about is something that you're living, you can't be effective in it. He says, your speculations and theories will come far short of preaching the true gospel of Christ. So you have to be living with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to be living through you. You have to have that fruit in your life if you're going to be an effective minister and be able to, to preach the true and the full gospel of Christ. Amen. Next, God first. God must always come before man. So again, guys, the, the, in that time, the prevailing thought of the day was this thought around predestination. And for you to come and say anything other than that, I'm sure that they called him a heretic. They probably said, you're lying, you're not telling the truth, you're leading people in false ways. And the truth is, he actually, was, he, he studied the word of God, the true word of God, and he was bringing the truth. But had he cowered down when man came against him, that truth would have been lost. And, and I'm sure God would have restored it somehow to the church at some point in time. But can you imagine without that, where, where as a church we would be? If, if I had to sit back and just say, I'm going to live my life, but I don't really know if I'm going to heaven or not. I mean, I guess maybe if God says so. I mean, that's, that's, not, that's not a spot of faith. That's not a place of power. As I know that I would not be as effective in my witness to others in my life if that was the reality that I had to live in. All right, it says, uh, Charles never embraced Calvinism and predestination, but took the view that each person held his own deciding vote regarding where he would spend eternity. As a result, Finney would revolutionize evangelism in North America and Europe by actually calling people who attended his meetings to make a decision for Christ, a concept that never made sense according to strict Calvinistic doctrine. So guys, altar calls, you know, we, we go to revivals, you hear pastor asking people to give their lives to the Lord. Before Finney's ministry, there, there was no such thing as an altar call. I mean, you, what did you make a, dis, a decision about? You either you were going to live, I mean, they would, you would go there and they would tell you to live holy. They might tell you how to live holy. But the only thing that you had was you should live holy because someday later on, and later on after you die, you may or may not go to heaven. Finney changed that and he said, he said make a decision. Li live holy, yes. But make a decision that your holiness isn't enough to get you to heaven. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did, his redemptive work on the cross, going down to hell, raising back up again, he, he made a way for you to be reconciled to the Father. He, it's through his works, because our works, our righteousness is a bed of filthy rags. But his righteousness is what gets us to heaven, and you have a choice to make. You have the opportunity to choose whether or not you give your life to Jesus whether you'll make him Lord of your life, you'll confess that you, you're in sin, that you have sinned, but his blood will wash you clean of that sin. And if you make him Lord, then you can be saved. And you, you accept his redemptive work. And that was something that had never been, never been known before. And they called it the anxious bench. What a great name for an altar, huh? An anxious bench. So for those that were anxious, that weren't willing to wait on, uh, the, on being saved, they, he, he sectioned off an area of the tent and they would come up there and they would pray with them and they would make that decision for Christ. And it was interesting. He said that he felt like he needed, they needed, those people needed to separate themselves. They needed to do a physical demonstration or an act that showed themselves to be separate from the sinful world they were coming out of. And that reminded me, guys, of when we were studying about like Azusa Street, 
and the people, because again, this is, it's a matter of faith, right? Your salvation is through, is by grace through faith. And if you remember Azusa, what was, how did they demonstrate their healings? What was, uh, I forget, sister so-and-so, would, uh, what, she would make them do something, right, to prove in faith. If they were, if she, if you were believing that you were going to get prayer and come out of the wheelchair, she would make you put the, the legs up on the wheelchair. If you thought you, if you had braces and you had to walk, she'd make you get rid of the braces. Well, it's the same thing here. He made these people make a declaration of faith and do something physical to come out. And it says, I found that also something was needed to make an impression on them that they were expected at once to give up their hearts, something that would call them to act and to act as publicly before the world as they had in their sins, something that would commit them publicly to the service of Christ. When I called them to simply stand up in the public congregation, I found that this had a very good effect in so far as it went. It answered the purpose for the time that something more was necessary to bring them out from among the masses of the ungodly to a public renunciation of their sinful ways in a public committal to themselves to God. So... He held an altar call, just like we see today, right? What happens most of the time when we have altar calls? If you want to receive Jesus as your Savior, stand up. Come to the front. Take yourselves out of this and de declare, make a public declaration. What does the word say? If you're ashamed of me before my father, I'll deny you. If you accept me before, you know, before, or before the world, I'll accept you before my father. Make a public declaration that, that your life, you're giving up the sinful ways of the world. You're coming out of the world and you're going to live for Christ. All right. So guys, Finney, he preached up and down the East Coast from New York, Rochester, Boston, um, as well as going into Ohio. Um, it was interesting. I grew up hearing about Oberlin College in Ohio. I had no idea it was uh, Charles Finney. Uh, Oberlin College, guys, actually started when a group of, uh, a group of students at uh, Lane Seminary, which was a college in Cincinnati, Ohio, they refused to stay at the school because some of the, the people that ran the school um, owned slaves, and they didn't believe in that. And they, and they said, if, if you're not willing to give up your right as slave owners, we're, we're going to leave. So they left and started this new school, and they asked Finney to come and be the professor of theology there. So he decides he'll go teach there during the summers and then go back home to New York in the winters. Um, but so he, he taught up and down the East, or I'm sorry, he preached revivals up and down the East Coast. He taught over in Ohio. And the revivals that he brought about, guys, they touched all social classes. It wasn't just the rich that he went to. It wasn't the poor he went to. He went to civic leaders and to business leaders. He went to school teachers, physicians, shopkeepers, farmers, migrant workers. And it was part, in part because he obviously he cared about their souls, but it was also in part because the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, was about more than it wasn't it was the church but it was the society he believed that the society as a whole had the ability to 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 change and to live holy and to and to be based upon christian principles and foundations and we saw the same thing in in the revival at wales right we saw as we studied about the the um the kentucky the camp meeting revivals when God comes down and he moves on people's hearts and he moves on such a large magnitude, it changes a society. It doesn't look the same. How could it? Things that were accepted before, things that were, you know, that were of Satan's kingdom that were there are no longer tolerated. So the, 
the, the area looks different. The culture is different. What you believe in, what you accept, what you tolerate is different. And the, the presence of God became so pervasive in the places he held these revivals that businesses would literally just shut down early and let their people go to revival meetings. Schools, <laughs> this one school, the kids were so distraught about their salvation and whether they were saved that the principal actually had Finney come into the school to preach to them. He thought the kids were just trying to get out of schoolwork, but Finney came in and the entire school got saved, including the principal. Uh, so bars closed, brothels closed, because no one was going. They, there was no, no one there to support them. Um, and it said a spirit of Christian unity filled the entire community. So, we, you know, it changed, guys. He, the nation changed. The culture where he was, where these revivals took place changed. I thought this was interesting. This is a quote from U.S. President James Garfield, and he was talking to those at Oberlin College. And eventually, um, Finney actually became president of Oberlin College. And he says, no college in the land has more effectively touched the nerve centers of the national life and thought and ennobled them more than did this institution to which Charles Finney devoted, devoted so many years of his life. As the, Oberlin College was the first institution that a, a black woman received a college degree and she you know she went on to actually become a, a headmaster at another school and, and Finney wouldn't one of the uh, one of the requirements Finney had to going to Oberlin College was that they would uh, it would be open to blacks and whites to men and women and, and these were all part of kind of the fabric of America that was being defined and Finney was helping and the church was helping through God's inspiration in their lives to define it that way. Really, guys, that was the uh, last thing I said I'd already said. So uh, the, the, what Finney did, guys, there were, so there were so many things that he did that were, that were not seen before, right? The evangelism, actually giving an altar call, people going and praying ahead of time. Uh, the going and, and kind of being part of the societal movements for social causes like suffrage and temperance and uh, the abolishment of slavery. And through the Holy Spirit working in his life, and because he didn't have that, um, that false mindset, a false doctrine, he was able to base the truth of God on the word of God. And he, with, with a faith, he was able to reach out and grab a hold of things that the, the church and the body didn't have before then. And uh, that was really, that was kind of the, the, I guess you would say, the major thrust that brought about um, the Second Great Awakening in the nation. So, right. Pastor. One of the things I loved about Charles Finney that wasn't in this particular book, but um, he prayed and Brother Zach talked about this, but his faith. That, that was what inspired me about Finney the most was that nobody else was seeing a move of God. And he would pray and really believe that when he went somewhere, that God was going to come down. And he expected it, and he went there with great faith. If you could.